0: Once again, it is time for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton. This is episode 73 of Wrestling with Theology, coming from the confessional corner today. I'm doing a little bit of a different format with this. Instead of having a certain amount of text I'm going to do, I'm going to start, like with the digging deeper last month, going through the confessions in a time-limit fashion. So we're going to have roughly a 20 minutes of whatever the raw audio is and wherever I am at that point, I'm going to finish that section up and then end the episode so that we just move on with kind of a run through of everything. Because some of these things like Article 28 that's before us now, I could spend lots of time on because of the impact of church and state on each other and upon our society today. So, what are we going to cover? We're going to cover Article 28 of the Augsburg Confession, the final article of the Augsburg Confession, which focuses on the power of the bishops. Do the bishops have power over both the church and the state? And if so, is this by divine right? Melanchthon starts us out in paragraphs 1 through 4. There has been great controversy about the power of the bishops, in which some have terribly confused the power of the church with the power of the state. This confusion has produced great war and riot. All the while, the popes claiming the power of the keys have instituted new services and burdened consciences with church discipline and excommunication. But they have also tried to transfer the kingdoms of this world to the church by taking the empire away from the emperor. Learned and godly people have condemned these errors in the church for a long time. Therefore, our teachers, in order to comfort people's consciences, were constrained to show the difference between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. They taught that both of them are to be held in reverence and honor as God's chief blessings on earth because they have God's command. Throughout the medieval church, the bishops had been given the land rights to most of the regions under their influence. The bishops and archbishops had become some of the wealthiest landowners in all of Europe. In the time of the Reformation, three of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire were archbishops. These electors elected the Holy Roman Emperor when the previous emperor died. This gave many among the clergy the idea that secular power was in their grasp. Eventually, the Pope granted himself the power to crown the emperor. The Pope gave himself the power over both church and state. Since the Pope had such great secular power on a global level, each bishop would have it on their own regional level. This confusion of church and state lacks the checks and balances of the American democracy. No one person should have absolute authority everywhere. God calls different people to different places in order to grant authority. The church should not run the state. The state should not run the church. These are the two realms which God has granted for authority. The state has authority to govern the nation. It has the authority to establish taxes, holidays, and laws to govern the residents of their nation. The church has authority to govern the church. There can be ecclesiastical laws that govern those who submit to the bishop's authority. Therefore, a bishop can command certain observances, such as the commemoration of certain regional saints and days. The two kingdoms should not be confused, though. God ordained each of them to work in their own sphere of influence. When one kingdom interferes with the other, neither are able to work properly, and God wants both to work properly. We pick up in paragraphs 5 through 7. Our teacher's position is this. The authority of the keys... Matthew 16, 19, or the authority of the bishops, according to the gospel, is a power or commandment of God to preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, and to administer sacraments. God sends out his apostles with this command. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. John 20, 21 and 22. And in Mark 16, 15, Christ says, Go, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The role of bishop has three objectives. To preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, and to administer the sacraments. That is all that the office of the keys deals with. Nothing else. Just the core of the gospel. So we move into paragraphs 8 through 11 as Melanchthon explains this a little further. This authority is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments, either to many or to individuals, according to their calling. In this way are given not only bodily but also eternal things, eternal righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. These things cannot reach us except by the ministry of the word and the sacraments. As Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. Romans 1.16 Therefore the church has the authority to grant eternal things and exercises this authority only by the ministry of the word. So it does not interfere with civil government any more than the art of singing interferes with civil government. For civil government deals with other things than the gospel does. Civil rulers do not defend minds but bodies and bodily things against obvious injuries. They restrain people with the sword and physical punishment in order to preserve civil justice and peace. Romans 13, 1-7 the church gives eternal things the civil government deals with everything outside the church everything that is temporal because temporal is not eternal and eternal is not temporal because temporal has a beginning has an end eternal has no beginning has no end having defined the office of the keys in the ministry of the word in this way, and goes on in paragraphs 12-17. through 17. Therefore, the church's authority and the state's authority must not be confused. The church's authority has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Let it not break into the office of another. Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world to itself. Let it not abolish the laws of civil rulers. Let it not abolish lawful obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments about civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not dictate laws to civil authorities about the form of society. As Christ says, My kingdom is not of this world, John eighteen thirty six. Also, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Luke twelve fourteen. Paul also says, Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians three twenty, and the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, second Corinthians ten four. As Melanchthon talks about not mixing the two, not letting one bleed over into the other one, he brings out four great quotes. First of all, Jesus to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, and we'll talk about that as we go as we continue on in the confessional corner about all the things of the millennialism and all those things that are talked about with Jesus coming down for a thousand-year reign. We'll get to all that later, but suffice it now to say, in the distinction between the church and the state, Jesus says, My kingdom, the church, is not of this world. As an intro to the parable of the rich fool, a man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, make my brother share the inheritance with me. He says, Who made me a judge and arbiter over you? This is not my job, Jesus says. I did not come to judge and arbitrate legal matters. I came to present the gospel. So then Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. That we imitate Paul as he went about his ministry as a heavenly citizen in an earthly world. And then the weapons of our warfare not being of the flesh, but having the power to destroy strongholds. We have this great power within us, simply in the Word of God, that we cannot be overcome by, because God's Word cannot be overcome. This world will not do it. It can try to squelch it, but it will never get rid of it. And so we have in paragraph 18, This is how our teachers distinguish between the duties of these two authorities. They command that both be honored and acknowledged as God's gifts and blessings. We need the church for the gospel. We need the state for law and order. We cannot live without either in this life or the next. We need to have that bit of safety. Melanchthon has now put in the distinction between these two authorities, that in his time were competing against one another because it was very much the Pope versus the Emperor over and over and over again throughout the time of the Reformation. So what happens if we start mixing things up? We look at paragraph 19. If bishops have any authority of the state, this is not because they are bishops. In other words, it is not by the gospel's commission. It is an authority they have received from kings and emperors for the purpose of administering the civil affairs of what belongs to them in society. This is another office, not the ministry of the gospel. Even if a bishop receives some political office, by inheritance or by appointment, That belongs to the state, not to the church. He may be a person in both. But then again, isn't that what most people want? Is they want somebody in power who has a foothold in both the church and the state? This is an election year. Although we're not really focused on the details of the candidates because we're too busy with whether or not we should open our doors or not, The question is always asked, what do the candidates believe? What denomination do they belong to? And can we accept them in that denomination? Because we want that. We want somebody who knows both sides. But that's not because they are from the church. It's not a gospel-mandated thing. It is something that makes us feel better. Continuing on, he goes into paragraphs 20 through 28. Therefore, when a question arises about the bishop's jurisdiction, civil authority must be distinguished from the church's jurisdiction. Again, the only authority that belongs to the bishops is what they have according to the gospel or or by divine right, as they say. For they have been given the ministry of the word and sacraments. They have no other authority, according to the gospel, than the authority to forgive sins, to judge doctrine, to reject doctrines contrary to the gospel, and to exclude from the communion of the church wicked people, whose wickedness is known. They cannot exclude people with human force, but simply by the word. According to this gospel authority, as a matter of necessity, by divine right, congregations must obey them. For Luke 10.16 says, The one who hears you, hears me. But when they teach or establish anything against the gospel, then the congregations are forbidden by God's command to obey them. Beware of false prophets. Matthew seven fifteen. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8 For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. 2 Corinthians 13, 8-10 The canonical laws also command this. And Augustine writes, Neither must we submit to Catholic bishops if they chance to err or hold anything contrary to the canonical scriptures of God. A bishop's authority comes only from the gospel. They have no other authority by divine right. If a bishop falls into error, which is entirely possible and very likely, the church is to point out their error. It is not like the bishop is above the Bible. That's another problem that the Reformers had with the Roman church, is that once you reach the rank of bishop and even the parish priest was above the Bible as being part of the ministerium and the magisterium of the church. They were able to read the Bible and understand it, so they were able to proclaim the doctrine in it. And the regular people had to accept that without question. But do we do that in the church or in the state? Do we accept whatever the government says without question? Normally, I would say no. But these last few weeks of the quarantine and the coronavirus lockdown, pretty much because the government said no. You cannot open your business. You you can have the big box stores open. You can have Walmart open. You have Target open. You can have the grocery stores open because they're essential. You can have Amazon and the Postal Service and all of the other delivery places open because they're essential because people at home still need stuff. But that all came down from the government. That all came down because they said, this is what you need to do. And Americans readily accepted because, well, originally we were told it would only be a couple of weeks. But now we're down into the couple of months, which is still kind of crazy. Now as we move into, again, a situation where the bishop deals with civil orders. We must look at the idea of marriage. Paragraph 29. If the bishops have any other authority or jurisdiction in hearing and judging certain cases as of matrimony or of tithes, they have this authority only by human right. If the bishops do not carry out their duties in these areas, the princes are bound, even if they do not want to, to dispense justice to their subjects in order to maintain peace. The ability to conduct weddings is considered part of the state's authority in the Lutheran confessions. The marriage is certain to be blessed by the church, but it was primarily a function of the state. Luther himself teaches, Marriage is a civic matter. It is really not, together with all its circumstances, the business of the church. It is only so when a matter of conscience is involved. And also, no one can deny that marriage is an external worldly matter, like clothing and food, house and property, subject to temporal authority, as the many imperial laws enacted on the subject prove. So Luther was very ready to just let the princes have marriage, let them conduct it. This is why we have justices of the peace in the first place, is so they can do the wedding ceremony and then the church can bless the couple should they want that blessing. What has happened, especially in America, we have taken the reformed side of it and said, no, 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 matrimony is a church thing. So we have people who don't come to church who want to have a church wedding because they want the scenery. They want the backdrop but they don't really care about any of the rest of it. And then you have those who just want to be married, that don't care where it is. It can be in the courthouse, it can be out in the park, it can be in church, wherever, just as long as they can say they are married to the one that they love. And sure, they may want that love to be blessed by God through a ceremony at the church, but for Luther and the Reformers, That was all the Church was required to do. I say it's a Reformed thing because that is really where the influence came from in the American sector, is that marriage is considered to be an ordinance for the Reformed, very much like it being a sacrament for the Roman Catholics. They have a very similar thing to it, which is why then it becomes a very entrenched in our minds of a church thing. But would it be okay if the pastors never did another wedding service? Absolutely. Because what is the message there? Very often, it's, oh, these two love each other. These two want to build a life together. Great. But me, me, for the most part, I would rather do a half dozen funerals than a wedding because it is much simpler, and that is actually the church's business and the funerals, not the wedding. But I could get on a tirade for this for a while, but it is approaching my time to be done for this week, so I will wrap it up here, nip this marriage rant in the bud, and go into. Reminders for what is coming up in the coming weeks. If you've not already found it or listened to it yet, Monday we had the sixth episode of Mormon Mondays on faith and repentance in the Latter-day Saint Church. I invite you to go back and look at that. Next week on Wrestling with Theology, we are digging deeper into Exodus as we continue going through what is in the covenant in beginning in chapter 21. And then we'll get into the following week, baptism in the Latter-day Saint Church, and then finishing up the epistle of First Clement in the Apostolic Fathers in two weeks. So I encourage you to be uh, ready for that as we go shift from Clement uh, to uh, the month of July, beginning in Barnabas. So until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing God's richest blessings on you as you wrestle with theology. Amen.